It's been a little over a year of lockdowns, curfews, online schooling, mask wearing, worry and grief. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought with it an experience of collective trauma that researchers will be studying for years to come. The British Academy has launched one such study, COVID-19 and Society, Shaping the COVID Decade. That's a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department. Richard Campbell is away. Our guest today is Dr. Molly Morgan-Jones. She's the director of policy at the British Academy, where she oversees all the Academy's policy work and activities on topics ranging from how the humanities and social sciences can help shape a post-pandemic future, to purposeful business, cohesive societies, policies supporting childhood, and higher education and skills policy. Prior to joining the Academy, Jones worked at RAND Europe, an independent policy research institute, where she specialized in research and innovation policy. Jones has also worked for the UK Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, and for the US Food and Drug Administration. Molly, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So before we get started talking about some of the findings of, of this big project the, the Academy's been working on, I want to talk to you about the framing, because when I was reading about this, the thing that struck me is that this is a discussion of the COVID decade, which sent me into a bit of a panic. I was like, COVID decade. So could you talk a little bit about why it is work has been approached through this kind of lens of an of an ideation of a COVID decade? So so this is a report that, that we have out, which is looking broadly at the long-term societal implications of COVID. So in thinking about that, we were trying to, uh, the report was done at the request of the UK's government chief scientific advisor, uh, Sir Patrick Valance, and really came from a desire to understand their, what do we need to be thinking about more long-term? There's an immediate crisis that we're dealing with. Uh, we need to get through vaccination, you know, different test and trace strategies, et strategies, et cetera. And I think where we really um, thought we could add value, the British Academy being the UK's National Academy for Humanities and Social Sciences, is thinking about what are the social, the economic, the cultural, the real individual effects of the pandemic. Um, and we think they're going to cast a long shadow into the future. Um, and so that's really when we started thinking about this kind of narrative around which we could bring together a whole range of evidence, which, you know, is based on trends um, that we were seeing before the pandemic, but are also playing out now and the way that um, the impact of COVID uh, is, is sort of exacerbating and accelerating some of those. Um, and the COVID decade just felt like a very natural sort of um, uh, way to start thinking about that. It, of course, also has a bit of a kind of historical re resonance. Um, the Spanish flu was one that, you know, began to emerge at the start of the, the 1920s. Um, and so, you know, we were playing a little bit with that, uh, you know, history being one of the disciplines that, that we represent. You know, I've, I found it really intriguing that you, you framed this also in terms of intersecting inequalities and also interconnected solutions. So I've, I thought that was very effective. Could you talk a little bit about some of these inequalities that, that, that are intersecting and then follow that up perhaps with a little exploration of these interconnected solutions? Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about uh, intersectional inequalities, you know, these are these are terms that are really well known to uh, social scientists and people who uh, are, have been studying these these issues for a long time. But what we really mean is that you know inequalities. Uh, th there are many of them that exist in society. We'll have gender inequalities, intergenerational inequalities between you know young people 
um, and, and older people, will have inequalities to do with race and ethnicity, with different socioeconomic statuses. Um, and so the idea of intersectional inequalities is that these will intersect and they will sort of compound and the effects of them uh, will play out in different ways. Uh, and you might have individuals or groups of people who have many layers of inequalities that, that, that they're grappling with. Um, and I think the the thing that we're seeing about about COVID nineteen, if you if you take health, you know, as 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 one example of that, there's been a lot of attention um, here in the UK and uh, you know in all countries around the world about the way that uh, COVID nineteen has not been felt uniformly across different That's groups right. of people, um, and that it's exacerbating the exister, existing structural. Uh, and social inequalities, but we're seeing particularly worse um, health outcomes for those who were already disadvantaged. And right. that is playing out against, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in, uh, race and ethnicity, in race and, you know, and ethnic minority lines, uh, as well as against sort of, you know, people uh, who are in greater levels of, of poverty, uh, people who are disabled, uh, for young people. And, and there are a lot of different ways that, that we need to think about this, but it's not just one type of inequality that's affecting mm -hmm. this. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a statistician uh, as you guys are by training, but you know, if, if you look at the way that people can control for some of these different variables, there's no one single explanatory variable. It's not about comorbidities. It's not just about where you live. It's not just about what kind of thing, uh, job you work in. It's all of these things sort of combining and, and wrapping up together. Yeah, that sounds a lot like you know we were talking about interactions between things. They're not; they're just not acting in some additive sense. They're they're that somehow the combination of is much different or beyond perhaps what one would predict from separate impacts if they were considered in isolation. Exactly, and so I think as we then went through this work, we really found that um, you know the, the the evidence of all the different kinds of impacts that we were seeing um, were so interconnected themselves. The challenges are interconnected. The types of impacts that we're seeing, um, and that meant the solutions themselves. You know, how are we going to get out of this? How are we going to move through and beyond the COVID decade? Themselves have to be interconnected. So I think that's really a core theme that cuts across um, all of the work that we did was, you know, the challenges and opportunities uh, are interconnected and, 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 and how we get through it needs to be seen systematically and systemically. There's going to be no one challenge, one solution. Next challenge, next solution. We need to think about how one sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, overarching goal or, or several sets of overarching goals can help, um, you know, we'll have multiple and, 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 and kind of cascading impacts across different types of challenges we're facing. So I know that that a, n a number of different researchers were working on on this from across a spectrum of sort of disciplines. Could you talk a bit about what sorts of, of research was being done as that sort of is an example of kind of the scope of the project? Yeah, absolutely. So as you can imagine, when we sort of, you know, got the first uh, phone call, uh, you know, the, would, would we take this this work on? And the question was posed to us, uh, you know, it was an independent report. It was up to us to think about how to do it. But we sort of were, you know, it's a huge question. What are the long term societal implications of COVID? Simple to say, but gosh, you know, complicated to answer. Um, so we, we did a range of things. I mean, one of the first things we did was we actually we wrote out to our entire fellowship and sort of wider research community. So uh, and we said, how would you answer this question? And, and the discipline that the British Academy represents range from history, philosophy, law, psychology, of course, statistics, um, and so across that full breadth. So we got a whole range of responses coming in. I mean, literally just saying, what do you think? So that was sort of our first 
sets of input. Uh, we also, you know, started engaging with counterpart organizations, different funding bodies, really trying to map and understand a whole range of different projects that were already underway. And that allowed us to establish sort of almost a framework for getting more evidence in, but in a much more structured way. So we sort of had about three weeks of saying, oh my gosh, how big could this thing get? And then we started to sort of <laughs> to sort of whittle it down. Um, and, and that was um, a really important step for us because it allowed us to sort of structure the way that we then got uh, you know, engaged with different disciplines. And the framework that we ended up using uh, was one where we looked across three main areas of, um, of sort of impacts that we thought would emerge. Those were in health and well-being, that was area one, uh, communities, culture and belonging, mm-hmm. that was area two, and then knowledge, employment and skills. And then we had some cross-cutting themes that we almost used as our sort of analytical lens, if you will. So we, we asked against each of those areas, what are we seeing about governance? We asked, um, what are some trends that might be emerging about trust? Um, we looked at inequalities, we looked at cohesion, um, and we looked at sustainability. And that gave us a framework that which we could then engage with different disciplines. So we had a group of historians who did work for us looking at past public health crises. Um, and, uh, and what have we learned from that? And they particularly picked up on those themes of governance and trust. Um, and what are some lessons we've learned from different vaccination campaigns, different public health campaigns, um, and of course, uh, previous um, pandemic uh, crises that, that the UK has faced. We had a really interesting team of a philosopher um, and some clinicians who looked in a lot of detail at symptoms that are, were emerging around long COVID and, um, and in particular at the, the loss of um, the sense of smell. And how that was sort of being not only discovered within a particular patient population, but then how that population of patients began to mobilize, get their voices heard and really start to say, hey, this long COVID thing is is really serious and and we need to pay attention to it. Um, We had a couple teams. We had a a team of demographers at the University of Oxford, um, did a lot of work looking at some of the drivers of health inequalities, mapping Mm -hmm. different kinds of data. Uh, We had uh, some economists do uh, work drawing on different inequalities in education, uh, employment and skills, looking very specifically at pre-existing trends in um, uh, in those areas and then what the effects of the pandemic were on inequalities. Uh, So a real mix of sort of uh, of of qualitative um, and and quantitative work coming together. It was fantastic to be part of and kind of help. Marshall and, and, and Shepard a lot of that long. And then once the reviews started coming in, giving us that much deeper focus, it was fantastic. Picking up on that idea of trust, one of the things that, um, you know, has been in the public discourse a lot in the US around COVID, whether it's vaccinations or masking or, or should we be locked down, is the issue of trust. And so I guess I'm just kind of curious what your report suggested trust is like around COVID and then maybe sort of what some of your recommendations, if there are recommendations about how you move forward from this might be? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, trust is a really important issue. And I think trust is one of those underpinning, you know, ideas uh, within our societies that, you know, we really have to pay a lot of attention to. And and what we were finding here in, in the UK is, um, you know, Britain entered the pandemic with really quite low levels of trust in government um, and institutions and politicians. And 
we could spend a whole nother episode talking about some of the, <laughs> the drivers of that. But, um, you know, th- th- there's a there's a group called the Hansard Society and they do audits of political yeah. engagement. Yeah. And they found that, um, you know, in, in 2019, um, some opinions of the, kind of the system of government governing were at their lowest level in, in the 15 years that that series has been going. Um, so heading into the pandemic, um, at first we saw a sort of rise in trust um, and uh, in kind of the first period of the UK's lockdown, so sort of from about now a year ago through uh, to May, that we saw some increases uh, in, in sense of national trust and a corresponding rise in feelings of national unity. But actually, uh, a, a specific um, piece of research that was done for the review found that as the pandemic went on, um, as there were lots of changes in the rules, we had new waves of the virus coming through. Uh, we had an opening up here in the summer, but then, you know, uh, you know, we had started to see rises in COVID cases again in the autumn um, and a whole range of different drivers um, that actually that sense of uh, trust in, in national government uh, started to decline. We had um, increasing sense of feeling of, you know, national division. Uh, but alongside that, a really interesting trend about um, greater trust in local government and more yeah. sense of local unity and people reporting they felt more connected uh, and, and, and greater, um, you know, sense of, of trust in the communities around them. So really interesting there when you think about then what are the different kind of levers and ways that we can think about the opportunities coming out of, of the pandemic um, and how can we build on that really strong sense of local unity and really inspiring stories in a lot of cases about sort of community level responses um, to the pandemic, helping each other kind of get through it at, at quite local levels. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking about the long-term impacts of COVID-19 with British Academy Director of Policy, Dr. Molly Morgan-Jones. I, I've, I've loved this this framing in terms of some of the history and context of this. I, you know, looking at some of the the things that I've read about the the U.S. pandemic response to the, the Spanish flu epi, uh, epidemic, you know, there was there was a lot of pushback in terms of wearing masks. Then there was also pushback in terms of what one city might do in terms of you know preventing public gatherings and others that might you know, act to say, no, 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 everything's free to free to go. And so I, I'm curious, you, you're going through and you're thinking about this and reflecting, not, you know, boy, I'm putting all this on you. So but no, no, in terms of the, in terms of all, you, know, you and your colleagues are, are, in terms of this framing of this. And so, so you've got this kind of conceptualization of a, a very complex, multifaceted challenge. And, and you're sort of saying, here's some ways to try to understand and start to approach this. But my question is, Is the next step seems to be going, okay, how does that move into policy and into action? So how do you, how do you take some of the understanding that this incredible investment of time, talent, and resource has put, been, been put forward, and then move it into kind of what do you do next in response to this? So, I mean, I'll tackle your question in, in two parts. I mean, first, methodologically, what, what we did in this is once we had all this evidence that was coming in, we had a couple different points in our um, process where we brought, you know, 
everyone together who was feeding in uh, to the report. And we had two different sets of workshops. One, a kind of synthesis workshop where, you know, I'm desperate to be in a room and, you know, have huge whiteboards around us and everything. But we, we did it virtually and we succeeded. Um, where we just said, you know, we tried to bring it all together and say, okay, what does it look like when we bring that historical insight together with this insight from the sociologists or the demographers or the people who did a review of mental health? Um, and that was fantastic. And we did that in a couple different pieces. But then the next thing we did was we used um, a very um, light touch way of thinking about future scenarios that might play out. Um, and so we constructed uh, within the team and then we tested them with a range of kind of external uh, people that we were working with to say, you know, there are a whole range of different um, uh, ways that this this pandemic could play out. We could have mutations of the virus, you know. We, we at that point, if this was sort of end of November, beginning of December, you know, we were we were getting some positive, you know, uh, noises about vaccine data, but we, you know, we didn't have all of that in yet, so we didn't know how effective the vaccines were going to be once they started rolling out. And we thought no matter what the the ways the sort of that's the sort of medical tools that we might have uh, were going to be, there was still going to be some sort of ongoing social and economic repercussions, and they would constrain decision making uh, in different ways. Um, and there are no right or wrong answers to that, but they're just going to be a set of factors that we need to think through. So we use those scenarios um, as a way of sort of testing our thinking about, okay, you've got all these challenges. Well, what happens if we have to play it out in scenario one, where we think the vaccines will be successful? We think that, you know, we'll have a period of rollout, um, but we're still going to have all of these effects uh, about, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a generation of, of young people who have lost um uh, a whole year of schooling and what are going to be the mm -hmm. impacts of that and there's all sorts of evidence about you know what longer term effect effects that has on on life there's still lots of people here in the UK you know we have a heavily um services based sector so mm -hmm. if you're in an economy um where where the services sector is shut down for long periods of time and you don't know how it's going to reopen that's going to have longer term effects um so we started to play with those scenarios so so that was sort of how we then started to uh, you know, and, and they just kind of emerged this set of what we've ended up um, articulating the seven policy goals that we think mm -hmm. uh, we can start to tackle um, to help shape the COVID decade. So I, I will I will hop in because I you, you mentioned the word shape, which links, I think, to some of the, the background work that maybe helped facilitate this. I don't I'm not sure if it did directly, but I know there were these shape workshops that um, you helped facilitate early in the pandemic, um, I believe starting in, in May of 2020. Is that right? Yeah. So, so we started um, thinking uh, around this time when, you know, the pandemic uh, was first uh, affecting all of our lives uh, in the way we've become all too used to now um, that, you know, the British Academy, uh, we, we really wanted to mobilize our disciplines um, and, and, and bring the insights of humanities and social sciences to the pandemic response. And we thought in particular that there was a real role we could play, even at that stage, in thinking through mm -hmm. some of these more medium to long-term issues um, that, that were emerging. So um, we, we put out uh, a call uh, to you know, our, our wider fellowship and research community, sort of saying, what do you think some of the issues are going to be? And let's convene a whole range of workshops um, to, to try and arrange it. And, and like everyone, we were just beginning to experiment with virtual, um, you know, and in, in sort of you could, you could just bring people together uh, virtually in ways that was much harder when we all used to gather in, in rooms together. So we ended up with a series of um, 
21 workshops that we ran from May to early July, which covered a, a huge range of issues. Again, um, looking at, uh, we had a fascinating discussion about history, which took us all the way back to uh, uh, Athens and uh, insights from people oh. like Thucydides oh, cool. um, and, uh, and, and, and learned in a way things like, you know, the, the response to pandemics. I remember being shocked by, as we talked about, um, different plagues and uh, that have uh, played out, you know, over the centuries. Our responses are still the same. They're about opening windows. They're about covering faces. Um, no. we, we have, you know, uh, you know, from the writings of uh, of people like Thucydides and and those around at the time, there was uh, a pillaging of funeral pyres by different families to sort of bury the dead and and hoarding of materials, you know. Uh, for that. And, you know, we all remember the great crises of, you know, no toilet roll or toilet paper, you know, as we say in America, back at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, so there are classic and sort of, um, you know, almost ingrained kind of responses. And I, I found that very fascinating, you know, how so much has changed, but also so much has been the same in the way we've thought about this over the years. So I got to move us back just a little bit, because I know a lot of people that might be listening to this have heard of STEM. But I don't know that they ma they know what the map shaped to. So could you describe a little bit what do you what, you know when you describe shape? What is what does what that, that describe? Yeah. So when we that? use the term shape, this is a term that we've started using um, uh, in the UK, um, which the acronym, uh, much like STEM, uh, is is important, but but it's more what it sort of refers to. But shape uh, we take to refer to the social sciences, the humanities, and the arts oh. uh, for people and the economy. But we think oh. it's a way of describing the complementary set of disciplines. Uh, uh, to the STEM subjects and the way that the two work together in harmony, mm -hmm. um, that you have insights, say, from, uh, you know, my own background is in science uh, and innovation policy. So this is sort of in my DNA that you mm -hmm. get um, you get advances in science, you get new innovations coming online, uh, but you need insights about how they're going to work when they yeah, interact yeah. with people. Um, what's the design of them going to look like? Mm -hmm. um, how, how are they going to, um, you know, uh, in, interact with different cultures in different parts of the world. You need the insights of both to come together. Um, and so that's why um, we were thinking about ways that we could sort of articulate the value of all the disciplines together. Um, and um, as these things happen, you know, in a room a couple years ago, uh, there were a, a group of people from across different organizations in the in the UK uh, representing different humanities, arts and social science disciplines. And, you know, I really couldn't tell you who came up with it or how it came about, but suddenly we all went, what about shape, you know? And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I really love this. I, I love this framing because, you know, when I think about this, I think about, well, the, the risk estimates and the modeling and kind of the biological understanding and the engineering and construction of the vaccines, this is all kind of a lot of core STEM kind of thinking. But, but, but the context, the management, the policy, the response, the impact, the assessment, in terms of human condition is really a sh is shape. And so to me, it's this this idea of the critical nature of kind of connection. It, it just really is appealing. I, I, I like this a lot. Yeah, no, uh, I'm a big fan of it as well. So uh, and, uh, and and we hope um, that, that it's a, a really, you know, and it just visually it works really well, too. Okay. I always think of sort of, uh, you know, a, a flower, you know, kind of uh, analogy, you know, and, and, and the, the shape subjects help, you know, the stem and the, and the flower bloom. And um, yeah. I, I wonder if given what you've been working on over the last year, 
and obviously the academy's orientation to sort of bringing social science and and these and humanities together what advice would you have for someone who is wanting to conduct research that is truly interdisciplinary we talk a lot about interdisciplinarity in academia but it doesn't necessarily mean we actually embrace it in a in a in a meaningful way so i wonder i mean beyond this podcast john clearly <laughs> <laughs> hey wait a minute beyond beyond this but but i you know i wonder what advice you might have to researchers who are doing work maybe on a smaller scale that about how to bring these things together in conversation in thoughtful meaningful ways because i think they do inform one another and help us get a bigger picture of some of what's happening no i mean it's a really it's a really good question and and i know one a lot of um you know i spend a lot of time talking about with our academics and our and our fellows about i mean i i think that the first thing is it's really important to understand that all of our disciplines have different languages and ways of sort of thinking about what evidence, uh, you know, what constitutes good evidence, what evidence even looks yes. like. Um, and all of that is really important for, for those disciplines, but it's not going to look the same in a different discipline sort of yeah. across the street or across the hallway. And then that sounds really obvious. Um, but I think especially once you're in some of the conversations in the room, it, you know, it can sometimes be hard to remember. I mean, I, um, again, talking to some statisticians, uh, you know, p-values are just something, you know, that I've taken multiple statistics classes. I'm not sure I could remember how you're supposed to think about a a p-value. But I remember someone once saying to me uh, around, you know, thinking about quantitative and and qualitative research, uh, you know, and we use a lot in qualitative research around case studies and sort of trying to understand some of the trends and themes you're seeing emerging qualitatively. And they sort of said, well, if you've got a toaster and it keeps burning your toast, how many times do you want to have burnt toast before you just think, I've got to throw the toaster out because it's just broken? And with case study research, you you know, you might only think, you know, I need five case studies and I can start to draw some themes out. Well, someone from a different discipline might say, what are you talking about? You need 5,000 different points of evidence before you can start to draw conclusions. And they're just different ways of coming at the problem. And one is not any less valid than the other. So I think, you know, that's really important. And then I think an appreciation really, and, and I hear this a lot from researchers, um, you know, that I work with and really think about those interdisciplinary spaces is how much insights from another discipline can enhance your own. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, and I I think, you know, and I hope that these reports and all this work that we've been doing, going back to the first sets of workshops through to these COVID decade reports that have come out, you know, really show, um, you know, we worked really hard to sort of seamlessly integrate a whole range of different disciplinary perspectives uh, into these reports. And then again, take that additional step to say, and then how do we translate that for policymakers? Um, Uh And it's not easy, you know, and 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 it takes time. So I guess that's my kind of final thought is really thinking about le- letting it take that time mm-hmm. and and just having a lot of actually what end up being you know fascinating conversations because uh, we, we've all just got to kind of talk to each other to work through it well I, i'm going to put in a plug for people to to read through at least the the overview executive summary of the report i mean i think that the the framing that you've done in terms of the themes of the workshops with the revitalizing, uh, you know, recreating, revisiting kind of histories and cultures and more. And then also the principles for policymakers. I, you know, I, I, anybody that could talk about kind of the pandemic as an example of radical uncertainty and the, uh, some of these ideas of adopting, you know, strategies that put human flourishing in its widest sense as central in their long-term vision. I, I think you've captured a tremendous 
aspirational goal for what we would hope to come out of this. Uh, and and all, the, the, the last part that I would just going to resonate in taking a quote completely, not out of context, but, but an important part of this is messaging is only as good as the public understanding of it. And I, I certainly, I, I want to, con- to congratulate you and, and your colleagues on, on trying to, to promote something that's going to communicate kind of this complex story in a way that we think about what's going to be important for us as humans in responding to this and moving forward from it. Yeah. No, and, and, and well, thanks for that, and thanks for the uh, endorsement. Um, and, and, and I do think that that is really important. And to pick up on that, that point you've just made about sort of the public understanding, I mean, I think we see that playing out, you know, really in real time and every day. I mean, if we go back to... Uh, you know, what we were talking about with the vaccines, you know, we of course need, you know, the scientists and all of that to kind of put that through. But we're really seeing a lot of vaccine hesitancy at the moment, mm-hmm. vaccine confidence. I mean, even in the last few days, you know, we've got reports of, um, you know, some of the, the vaccines, uh, you know, there's risks of blood clots, really thinking about how do we communicate what those risks mean? I mean, again, risk communication is, you know, a whole nother area that, you know, we could spend a, a lot of a lot of time on. Um, but again, another area where we can look back and learn from history, you know, if we look at um, the MMR vaccine, so the measles, mumps and rubella, you know, vaccine campaigns, you know, it, there's still a lot of um, uncertainty in, in some areas and some communities because of a couple damaging articles and, and stories that were out there. But what have we learned from that is about the real mm-hmm. importance of community messaging, integrated, joined up, you know, approaches. Um, here in the UK, e- even I think as recently as a couple years ago, though I'm sure I have colleagues who will correct me on this, you know, they were thinking about how do we really get uh, people to, to take up flu vaccines, sort of annual vaccination programs. And, you know, they did a lot of research into, well, how do we help Vac- vaccinations and you know just going and getting your vaccine fit into your lives you know can we offer it through local pharmacies um, if we've got moms with small kids how do we go to them rather than making it kind of a task and, and and who are the kind of local leaders that we can talk to it's not about you know always you know the the politician or the figurehead you know uh, you know people on the playground at the park that you see on your street you know really thinking in, in very kind of locally grounded ways about this messaging um, can be really and um, you know transformational well molly that's all the time we have for this episode of stats and stories thank you so much for being here yeah thank you molly oh it's a real pleasure thank you for having me i really enjoyed it stats and stories is a partnership between miami university's departments of statistics and media journalism and film and the american statistical association you can follow us on twitter apple podcast or other places where you find podcast if you'd like to share your thoughts on the program send your email to stats and stories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.